0: Matthew chapter 1 verses 1 through 6 this morning because we will be doing another reading a little later on which if you are the type that loves to get ahead and put a finger in the Bible it is is Second Samuel chapter 11 which is on page 262 um, but for now let's stand for the reading of the gospel of Matthew chapter 1 1 through 6. the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David and the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amimadad, and Amimadad the father of Nashon, And Nashan the father of Siloam, and Siloam, the father of Boaz, by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. And David was the father of Solomon, by the wife of Uriah. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. This morning... We are going to be talking about things that may cause you to squirm. Um, it's going to be, for some people, it might even, I might need to kind of put out a trigger warning that, man, there's going to be some emotional things, or you're going to go, Ooh, why are we talking about this? We are going to be talking about power, and we're going to be talking about victims. We're going to be looking at the relationship between King David and Bathsheba, and what took place there. Normally during this time of the year, we we really tend to want to think about snowflakes and evergreen trees, and trees that are kind of filled with garland and tinsel, and beautiful lights that are wrapped around. We want to think about presents under the trees, we want to think about that potential Xbox, or that PS4, or that... Barbie doll or whatever it is that you might be longing for, or that Amazon gift card. You're, you're kind of hoping that maybe we, during uh, even this Christmas season, you're going, can we just talk about shepherds and wise men and that beautiful star and that quiet night in a stable? So why in the world would I be taking time intentionally to be looking and preaching on this scandalous story of a man named King David and Bathsheba? Wouldn't it just be easier and better to kind of keep this season light and airy and have everyone just smile and be happy? After all, that's that's kind of what is piped in through all the stories. We wish you a Merry Christmas. We wish you a... And we just kind of have to wear these faces of, of happiness and everything is great and just wonderful. Just smile and push through is what this season is telling us. The reality is that there is isn't really anything safe about the true meaning of Christmas. My friend Duke Kwan, who's a pastor in Washington, D.C., reminded me of this when he posted something on Facebook. He said this, Christmas grace is for the social outcast, shepherds, the religious inquirer, the magi, the broken-hearted and confused, Joseph, the bedless and the refugee, Joseph, Mary, Jesus, the lonely, Anna, the, power, the poor and powerless, the shepherds and, and Mary, the sad and unfulfilled, Simeon, the ethnic outsider, wise men, and the unmarried childless and widowed, Anna. In fact, if we really look at Christmas, and we try to look even at a cultural kind of view, on three occasions, at least three occasions in the last century, the public recitation of Mary's Magnificat, which is found in Luke chapter 1, was banned by governments out of fears that its apparent subversive message might incite even revolution in India during the, the British colonial rule, in Guatemala in the eight, uh, 1980s, where the song had become so cherished by the country's poor that it created an uprising, uh, in Argentina during the Dirty War in 1974 to 1983, where protesters placed the Magnificat words on posters throughout the Capitol Plaza. And these were the words that, that, that brought about an uprising. He brought down rulers from their thrones but had lifted up the humble. He filled the hungry with good things but he sent the rich away empty. That would take off any government. And it's a threat to power and control. So it doesn't sound like a true Christmas is about whether or not it, we have a white Christmas. So much, I, I've even heard it in our house. Man, I hope it snows on Christmas. It, or it, maybe it's not even about having our entire family gathered around our Christmas table. All, everybody in, all the college students, all your family members, all from no matter where they're at. Maybe it's not about that family meal. Maybe it's not about whether or not we cash in on our Christmas wish list. We have to ask the question from the very outset, why did he even come? What was the purpose of Christ coming? Did he come for our family traditions? Did he come so that we might have a Christmas party that is amazing and everybody is wearing an ugly sweater? Is that why he came? Did he come to give you the American dream? No, Christ came for a purpose. Our world, our families, our marriages, our relationships, our bodies, our souls are absolutely broken. Broken. Beyond any real lasting repair on their own. It's just broken. Sure, we can kind of throw a band aid uh, on it and get some counseling and kind of just kind of push through it. Man, I can make it another day. Maybe we can get a little bit of Oprah in us and get a word of encouragement from her and just say, Man, I can make it through another day. Maybe we can buy a book and get some kind of self help and go, I can make it another day, another month, maybe even another year. But will that really cure the deepest ache? in our souls and the answer is no christ came to us to be the savior of the world we were reminded on the very first week the scripture says that he will save his people from their sins and if we look around our world and this is should be nothing new to us our world is deeply broken with a fatal flaw. Not just a flaw, like it's a little off. A fatal flaw. Sin runs rampant through our personal lives, both whether it's hidden or whether it's public, makes you know, it always has a way, and we're gonna see that in a little bit. There's no such thing as a private sin that doesn't make its way out. Uh, and we can see that everywhere that we look. Just take time during this season, or take time at your Christmas dinner and go, oh man, this is messed up. My family, I need, we need Christ. And if you don't believe it, the reality is you are not living. And we could see that in the story of David and Bathsheba. So before, before we kind of dive into the sword story, where... Uh, It kind of breaks all the barriers of what is appropriate to talk about in in a church context. I want you to hear this phrase. And Donna, I think you can put it up there. There is grace for the broken and there is grace for no one else. There is grace for the broken and there is grace for no one else. If there is no broken in our world, there is no need for grace. Our world is broken and in dire need of grace to be poured out. If, and friends, here's the reality. If you want to experience grace, you have to peer, whether you like it or not, into the abyss of brokenness. And you have to not just look into the abyss of brokenness of mankind. You have to look into the abyss of your own personal brokenness. I am broken to the core. Even those of you who are in Christ quickly forget how broken you really are, how quickly sin seeps back in and how much you need the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so we need to remember that grace is for the broken. And there is no grace for no one else. If there's no brokenness, there's no need for grace. We need to be honest, really honest about our brokenness. Brokenness, whether it's created by our own stupidity, our selfishness, our greed, our lust, or where we are finding ourselves even as unwilling recipients of other people's brokenness. Friends, you will never be moved by the rescue of Jesus, by, grace, by the grace of God, until you have some inkling of how broken you really are. You're never going to be moved to, in worship and, and adoration and generosity and kindness and love and all the fruits of the Spirit until you are, have some inkling of the depth of your personal brokenness so as we look into second samuel chapter 11 we need to remember that there is grace for the broken and there is grace for no one else even in the midst of this story remember that the story of david and bathsheba is not even just a unique story a one-time story outside of our time these this is a story if we're honest it it is our story on one level or another A story of brokenness. And we know people like this, or we are people like this. And honestly, if we read through 2 Samuel chapter 11, our jaw should should drop, our heart should ache, because the reality is, King David was no saint. I grew up thinking this guy is the guy to emulate. Be like David. You know, after all, he was the guy who was able to play some pretty sexy classical music that would console the soul of the mad king, Saul. David would come in, he'd play his, his lyre, he'd play his guitar, and after a while, Saul's angry heart would just subside until he picks up the, a javelin and throws it at David, trying to kill him. David was this, had this amazing, even superhero kind of faith to simply meet the daunting Goliath out on the field and kill him. Not with a sword, not with a, a javelin, not with some amazing strength feats of strength. No, he killed this amazing giant with a stone and a sling while the rest of Israel, wearing their armor, coward in fear now yeah, that was David and yes he was the author of numerous psalms that are timeless and inspired and found in scripture yes he was even known as the man after God's own heart but he was no saint and we're going to see that clearly clearly in 2nd Samuel 11 hear this story in the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all of Israel. They ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Reba, and David remained where? In Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house, and he saw from the roof a, a woman bathing, and she was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? And so David sent messengers and took her. And she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from uncleanness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived. And she sent and told David, I am pregnant. So David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. And Uriah, when Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war was going. Kind of stupid small talk, right? If you think about it. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house and there, and there followed him a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord and did not go down to his house. When they told David Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? And Uriah said to David, the ark in Israel and Judah dwells in booths. And my lord Joab and his servants of my lord are camping out in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and drink and lie with my wife? As you live and as my soul lives, I will not do this thing. Then David said to Uriah, remain here today and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. And David invited him and ate in his presence and drank so that he made him drunk. And in the evening he went out to lie on his couch with his servants of the Lord, but he did not go down to his house. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter he wrote, set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him that he might be struck down and die. And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab. And some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. Then Joab sent and told David all the news about the fighting. And he instructed the messenger, when you are finished telling him, telling all the news about the fighting to the king, then... If the king's anger rises, and if he says to you, why did you go so near to the city and to fight? Did you not know that they would shoot from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, the son of that guy? And did not the woman cast an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he would die at the Bez? Why did you go so near the wall? Then you shall say, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. So the messenger went and came and told David all that Joab sent to tell him. And the messenger said to David, the men gained an advantage over us and came out against us in the field. But we drove them back to the entrance of the gate. And then the archer shot at your servants from the wall. Some of the king's servants are dead and your your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. Then David said to the messenger, thus shall you say to Joab, do not let this matter trouble you. For the sword devours now one and now another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it and encourage him. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the mourning was over, David sent and brought her to his house. And she became his wife and bore him a son. But... The thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Merry Christmas. I want you to be able to see our need for grace. In this story, we're going to be looking at at David's sin, but we're also going to be looking at Bathsheba's pain. I want you to see in David's brokenness that there is a progression of enticement and a progression of power. You can see in verses 2 Samuel 11, in verses 2, 3, and 4, that there, the main verbs are he saw, he sent for, he took, and he lay. Those are four very powerful progression kind of words. It always starts somewhere, right? And for, for David, it start with started with he saw one commentator that I I love to read said uh, it wasn't a sin for him to see Bathsheba it was a sin for him to note that she was beautiful so somewhere from for him the sin grew inside of him it's somewhere from making a mental note that she was beautiful that he crossed the line he saw he sent for he laid with so those verses there's a progression growing growing in there at any point you see you could stop the progression david could have stopped the progression he could have said no that is enough but it didn't stop there's an advancement to sin what happens is what james tells us in his first chapter What happens is that he was lured and he was enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And when it is fully fully grown, it brings forth death. It brings forth death. It begins with just a simple thought. It begins with a a little glimpse. It begins in the mind somewhere and it grows and it grows and it grows until ultimately it brings forth death. David saw Bathsheba. She was bathing. And I don't want you to be too hard on Bathsheba. I have no idea and neither do you what were the cultural mores of bathing during that time period. In fact, uh, maybe she was on the edge, and maybe she wasn't, but the focus here on this text, if you look at the vast more amount of references here, the focus is on who? David. Not Bathsheba. And if you know anything about how uh, David and the city of David was constructed, David was, and his palace was perched up on a hill. And he had a vantage point to look down and look over his city when he should have been in the springtime out fighting and so david what was he doing in the cool of day he was out grazing he was looking his eye was wandering to and fro seeing what he could see david saw and in seeing He lost his mind. And that's where sin always starts. In the mind. As a thought. And as a thought, it is nourished and it is watered and it is promoted into growth. Every sin that we have starts in the mind. And we tend to nourish it. Water it. Promote it. His understanding, you see, no longer ruled his affections. He saw Bathsheba, and in seeing Bathsheba, he lost sight of God. He lost. And it it was like looking into the sun. Something that I was always told as a kid never to do, right? But in looking, it was like looking into the sun. And that's, that, that was the beginning of sin. And that's what sin is like. You look at something and it kind of impregnates. And there's no pun intended here. It impregnates. It grows. There's a mental image. And no matter where you turn, that mental image, that desire will not go away. It's like looking at the sun. And for a few minutes afterwards, all you can see is that white blotch in front of you. And he saw Bathsheba, and he lost his sight of God. This is David, who looked at the giant Goliath, and with faith and with courage and tenacity, he entered into battle with him because he did not see Goliath. He saw God. And now everything has changed. Everything has changed. In this period of David's life, he lost sight of God. Sin is deceitful. Power is destructive. When he saw Bathsheba, he didn't see sin. He saw beauty. He saw something desirable. And my friends, The seed of every known sin lies in our hearts. The seed of this sin lies in all of our hearts. And that is why we need the incarnation of Christ. Many pastors... Let's move on to Bathsheba's pain. I'll be honest, it is hard as a pastor to even want to address Bathsheba. It's much easier to look at King David and his faults and get down on him and just say, man, you jerk. This is rape. Full-blown using your power and your authority to, to take something that is not yours and take it. That is what this is. So it's hard to talk about this subject to look into the eyes of this woman who is broken, who often gets a very bad rap, especially from pastors. Almost many evangelical sermons I listen to on just 2 Samuel chapter 11, they get down on Bathsheba. In fact, she's often portrayed as a seductress who is putting herself out there for the whole world to see. And they are getting down on her. It was her immodesty that led David to commit such a terrible sin. The problem is, it was David who abused his power and took what was not his. That treated her as a commodity to be used and abused. And did you even see how he addressed the whole thing? He he went to such lengths to exterminate the problem, Uriah. To the point where it wasn't just demoting Uriah, but orchestrating the death of Uriah. It, It led ultimately to murder. And if you go on to 2 Samuel chapter 11, you see how even Nathan, the prophet, said, you are the man. It, it, there was no blame whatsoever on Bathsheba. The blame was all on him. But if we could go back to Matthew chapter 1, I'm not sure if you caught it in chapter, uh, verse 6. There was something really unusual Matthew, when writing this genealogy under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, was very intentional, Uh, and we've done this for the past three or four weeks, we read through the whole thing, and he is very intentional about name after name after name after very weird pronunciations of names. Why can't they just call him Bob and Rich and Nick and Ryan and Carol and give names like that, but gives them all names. But didn't it strike you unusual that Bathsheba is not specifically mentioned here by name? Maybe maybe Matthew didn't like the fact that Uriah is a Hittite. Uh, He's a foreigner. He's outside the covenant people of God. That means that Bathsheba could have even, even been a foreigner herself or married poorly. But Tamar and Rahab were Canaanites. And Ruth was a Moabite, so being a foreigner wasn't the issue here. Maybe Matthew is hesitant to use her name because she was such an atrocious sinner, right? Man, she did this? She was involved in a lot of sins. She was involved in maybe even a cover-up. But compared to Tamar, this woman's a saint. And Tamar gets mentioned by name. So that's not the issue either. Rather, the issue here is one of relationship. Through marriage, Bathsheba rightly belonged to her husband, Uriah, the Hittite. She's not a schemer. She's not an outsider. She's not even a widower she, or a widow. She is very much in this story a victim who is forced into a position she did not want to be in, because she belonged by marriage to Uriah the Hittite. This man, for better, for worse, richness, re- better for worse, richer or poor, sickness and health, till death do us part, is my husband. So the, this whole situation must have deeply pained Bathsheba. She was abused and treated as a, as a commodity. She was powerless to change her circumstances. Could you imagine standing up to the king and saying, Dude, this is my house. I will not go into your palace. I will not go into your bedroom. That is asking for capital punishment. She, was, she, was, she would have even been afraid to have that conversation with her husband when he discovers that she is pregnant while He has gone off to war. And not only is she pregnant, she is pregnant by the king. She she had her hands tied as the plot to kill her husband unfolded. She even mourned the death of the one that she loved. And then she watched, up close and personal, David, get away scot-free. Until 2 Samuel 12. This could not have been easy for her. She was used, abused, taken for granted. She was a commodity. She was probably wondering in the midst of all of this, how does this, my situation, fit into God's plan? How does rape, abuse, power work into God's plan? And I wonder how many of us can honestly ask the question or relate to her. Does this relate to you? You've experienced it. Or maybe maybe not you personally to the extent that she did. Maybe you know somebody very closely who can relate to this. Bathsheba was going through an emotional hell and there are times where all of us one way, one degree, one level or another can relate to this story. I know I can. Clearly. And for me it goes all the way back to when I was a child. At the age of seven. Having a favorite uncle take advantage of me. Someone who had power and my respect, my love and my adoration. He was the favorite guy to hang around with. And at the age of seven, multiple times, I was sexually taken advantage of by someone in power. I, I, I was a victim At the hands of of a person who neglected his duty to care, to protect, to love. I was taken it for granted by someone who had more than enough already. He didn't need me. As a young boy, I, I felt Powerless to change any of the circumstances in those moments. And I also felt treated extremely unjustly by those who had the power to change. People who just swept it under the carpet and ignored I understand Bathsheba. And to this day, it's it's a mark in my story Definitely not on the highlight reel like we want Christmas to kind of be. The stories of, look at all this, these great things that have happened in 2016. It's wonderful. Jesus has come. Part of my story is one of pain. But I always, and we always need to remember how 2 Samuel 11 ends. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah her husband was dead what did she do she lamented and we're going to be talking about lamenting in january and february lamenting that he was dead she lamented over her husband and when the morning was over that that time period david sent and brought her to his house do you hear those words again God. the man has no empathy he has no boundaries. He sent for it. Come on, come to the house. Everything's free and clear. But what does it say? The thing that David had done displeased the Lord. He displeased the Lord. God was upset, and God was angry. And as as Bathsheba went through her situation, God was grieving. He was grieving over the pain that she had to endure. He was grieving that those who should have known better, who were empowered to make a difference, were using their power for selfish means. And friends, hear, hear this. It was through Bathsheba and others through her line, through her pain, that Jesus came. Jesus had a message, a message of hope for anybody who had any kind of sense of hopelessness. God can redeem the most rejected, the most victimized people. The most blameworthy people can be redeemed because Jesus came out of that kind of a family. There is no evil too great that God cannot undo. There is no sin too big that God cannot forgive. And there is no wound. Hear this. There is no wound too big that God cannot heal. And for the victims of this world, he knows exactly how they feel. He knows exactly how you feel. The pain, the agony, the frustration—whether it be man deep emotional hidden baggage that you do not want to tell even your closest friend, or the pain of yesterday, whatever it was. Here's the reality about Jesus: He was abused and treated as a dispensable commodity. He He experienced the plotting of men who wanted him dead. He was treated unjustly by those who had power to do otherwise. And he was the victim of religious men who were neglecting their duty. <laughs> and they all thought they won. Until that Sunday, when that could, all that could be found of him was an empty tomb and grave clothes. They thought they won. And Jesus goes, oh, oh no. You, you, you silly fools. I'm risen. I'm alive. And the victim of this most hideous plot, the plot to kill the Son of God, the victim who gives new hope to anyone who has been victimized. This is the Christ who has risen from the grave and is reigning now, who has come from a story of pain, of loss, of victimization. Being a commodity. Brothers and sisters, you are not alone. And this is the story that we take to those who have been hurt and broken and lost. You are not alone. The story itself wraps itself around you and whispers into your darkness saying, Paul, you're not alone. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. You are mine. There are dear Christian brothers and sisters who have been violated, and this story is saying, you are not alone. You are not alone. So why did God include the story of Jesus of Tamar and Rahab and Bathsheba into this lineage of the Messiah, this is why. It is to illustrate that Jesus came to take away the shame of sin. The shame of sin and bestow the greatest honor on undeserving sinners. He's come to take away the, the shame of childhood abuse. He's came, come to take away the shame of rape, abuse, of employers being down on you and speaking down to you. The spouse who has just been terrible to you, who has taken advantage of you every step along the way. Jesus is saying, listen, I've come to take away that shame. And I've come to give you the greatest honor. Jesus removed The scarlet letter. Do you remember the story about the scarlet letter? A woman, uh, Hester, Hester Prynne, is that her name? Who walked around because of adultery. And she had to wear a scarlet letter marking her out in a public kind of way and saying, you, adulteress. I'm not quite sure I like the way that it ended up the story itself, but that's a whole nother thing. Jesus came to remove that scarlet letter from these men and these women that they carried around, that I carry around, and made me an heir of the kingdom of God. That's what he did. And this is what he still does today. And this is what he has done and will continue to, to do until he comes again. We need to be reminded of this news frequently frequently this is good news burke parsons a uh, a pastor down in orlando area if you've ever heard of rc Sproul, anyone rc Sproul. this is uh, burke parsons works with him and this is a a tweet i love that even really conservative guys put out tweets this is what he says we're a forgetful people whose hope too often fades isn't that true Which is why we so desperately need to hear the gospel proclaimed to each of us every week. We forget quickly. This is good news. And yet, tomorrow morning, you're going to get up out of bed, make your breakfast if you dare to. Uh, You're going to go off to work, do whatever your duties, and we're going to forget this tomorrow morning. No, you're going to forget it when you walk out of here and get into your car because you're going to be fretting about driving down the streets, Or you're going to wonder about, do we have all of our Christmas presents? What about Uncle so-and-so? What about Aunt this person? What about, do we have enough presents for our kids? What about the trees? Do we need to add another something to this? What about this? What about that? And we forget this good news, that Christ has come. On top of that, the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians reminds us, now I remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you have received and by which you are being saved. I missed a piece. Well, I remind you, brothers, of the gospel that I preached to you, which you received, in which you are standing, and by which you will be saved. We need to be reminded of this gospel. And we also need to be, I want to take you back to the beginning of the sermon about that little phrase, because I'm sure you've already forgotten about that. There is grace for the broken. And there is grace for no one else. This grace is for you. It is for those who have abused power and exerted your selfish needs and agendas on other people. That gospel is for you. That grace is for you who have exerted power wrongly, abused your rights, what you think are your rights, and used your power as a privilege to indulge your flesh. But it's also for those who are feeling hopeless, abused, and like a commodity pushed around shoved around a silent voice friends there's there's hope in christ the one who came kicking and screaming into that incarnation night maybe we should change it from christmas to incarnation night is the same one who breaks into our darkness and he doesn't just break in like a bully He offers the balm to heal up our brokenness. And friends, this is so much better. It is so much more redemptive than having a white Christmas. It's so much better than having a house full of families and friends where family traditions can be acted out and lived out. And it is so much better than scoring the mother load of presents. Friends, if your trust is in Christ, He has come for you. Still today. And before God, you wear no scarlet letter for your past sins, the past abuse anymore. It's gone. Jesus takes away your sin. It's gone. You're clean. And there's no more lingering surprise or even horror before God's throne about what has happened. There's only honor bestowed on you as a child of God. And that is the good news that you must believe again today. Amen? This is a story to be shared. It's not just for you here this morning. If you don't do anything with this story, it is pure neglect. You have the greatest privilege of the gospel in your hands. And if you choose to do nothing, It's neglect. In this Christmas season, friends, if you do nothing with the gospel but open presents and celebrate around a tree and do some Christmas shopping, you're blowing it. I want to call you to greater belief in this gospel where there's hope for today and there's hope for today for tomorrow and this broken world needs this hope so take this precious gift the power of the gospel take it home take it to your workplace do not be ashamed of the gospel for it is the very power of god unto salvation